But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, uh, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So this week, this, this passage of Scripture um, really couldn't have come at a worse time. <laughs> you know, it's a, this is a tough passage. I mean, it's a tough passage, and I had a tough week. And uh, you know, my, my covenant group, when we came to this passage uh, this Wednesday, we're a week ahead of you guys. And so, you know, where my sermon is really good, it's probably the credit of my covenant group. You know, so we talk about the passage a week ahead. And when we came to this passage, it was interesting as our people, you know, the people in our group looked at it and started thinking about it. It's like, you know, one of them said, is, is this the new covenant or the old covenant, right? I mean, this is a somber passage, isn't it? It's a head scratcher. Did you know that uh, the, the church where Charles Spurgeon was the pastor um, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they accumulated 200 years of sermons, including all of Charles Spurgeon's sermons through the decades that he was there. 200 years of sermons. And do you know that no one ever preached from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to th this passage? Nobody touched it. Wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So here we are this morning, probably being stupid. I don't know, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to come into this passage this morning, and, the, and God has something to tell us. It's, it's, Luke included it through the guidance of the Holy Spirit for a reason. It's here for a reason. And it is a somber passage. And we have to treat it, I think, with seriousness. Because God is saying something to us in this passage this morning. Um, because of the week that I had, you're not going to get four gospel applications. You're only going to get two. <laughs> and we're going to get right to the nub of it this morning before we get to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Two gospel applications. First one, if Satan can't destroy a church from the outside, 
He will seek to destroy the church from within. If he can't destroy it from the outside, he'll seek to do it internally. Let's remember the context of Acts so far, right? We're in a pivotal moment here in the book of Acts. Remember chapter one, they're waiting on the return of the Lord Jesus, or excuse me, of of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus has ascended. He's promised that he will return. He's gonna send the Holy Spirit. They rename, they, they, they choose a 12th apostle. And then in chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes. Day of Pentecost, incredible day. All the signs and wonders and miracles attached to it. Peter preaches his sermon. Thousands of people are converted and baptized. And then at the end of chapter two, you have those great verses that speak to how the church of God was living together in biblical community. They were finding favor with those in the community. They were dwelling with one another, hearing the teaching and preaching of the apostles, breaking bread together, reaching out to those who didn't know Christ. And God was blessing And then in chapter three, Peter and John, on the way to the temple, they heal that man who had been crippled for more than 40 years since he was born. Incredible miracle. Again, another opportunity to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands more are converted and come into the family of God. And as a result, Peter and John are arrested. We saw this last week. And they come before the Sanhedrin, and though the Sanhedrin tells them to stop proclaiming that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah, they refuse and say, we can't do that. We must testify to what we've seen. And the Sanhedrin didn't know what to do with them. They said, if we kill them, the crowd will kill us. So they let them go. And then we closed out last week with that great passage where the church is gathered together and they're praying and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the characteristics of that filling of the Holy Spirit in the church was that their prayer life was passionate and filled with power and targeted and God-directed and God-informed. And and then there was this boldness with proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ as they went about their daily life. And then the the last few verses of chapter 4 provide... The, the seedbed for what we have in chapter five. There was this sacrificial, joyful generosity that, the, that, that was experienced in this early church to the extent that they were selling their assets and, and bringing them to the apostles to help with the needs of God's people and God's church. And the last few verses give an example of that. A man by the name of Joseph, he was a, a Levite, of the tribe of Levi, who had been, he was part of the dispersion of the Jews. His home was in Cyprus, but he, he, was, he sells a piece of property and he brings it to the, to the apostles. And it was such an overwhelming gift of generosity that it's remarked upon and it amazed. And he was given a different name. And as part of all this, he was also known as Barnabas, who we'll come into contact with later on. But that act becomes kind of the seedbed of what happens here in chapter 5. Verse 1 says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Sound familiar, right? Just Just like Barnabas did. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? I want you to notice something before we get into their sin and the response of their sin. 
Don't skip past that little phrase, why has Satan filled your heart? We have to recognize that what was going on here in this passage was satanic opposition to this fledgling church. Church, we, have, we are never more in danger of satanic opposition than when God is blessing us as a church and using us and working through us for his glory and for his kingdom. Do you think Satan targets churches that deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, that don't proclaim the good news of Jesus? Do you think he targets them? No. He's going to target churches that proclaim the gospel and seek to live out the gospel and bring it to their community and make disciples and see the the good news of Christ spread around the world. We're never in more danger than when we're being blessed and used by God for his glory. And, And as you see, Satan has only so many tactics in his arsenal. He he started in chapter four seeking to, to, you know, oppose them through public, outside, external force. Right? He came at them like a roaring lion. You know, Satan is pictured in different ways in the scripture. A roaring lion, an antagonistic enemy who is forceful and, and will attack like that. But he's also an angel of light, okay? a deceiver. And then, of course, you have the image of him as a serpent who works from within the garden to destroy the harmony of God's people and God's plan. And, and this is what you see here. He goes from outside force to internal fraud, in order to destroy the fellowship. Satan's become a punchline in our, in our culture. Uh, we, people dress up with little red suits and pitchforks and tails, and he's a joke. Church, he's no joke. He's an implacable enemy who hates the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and will seek to destroy churches that proclaim it and seek to destroy Christians who believe it. And that opposition will come from outside and it will come from inside. Frankly, outside opposition is not something that we have to be too afraid of, at least so far in our culture. We're much more susceptible to internal corruption. We're much more susceptible to seeing our testimony and the effectiveness of our lives as individual Christians affected and ruined, not because of those who might make fun or scoff or uh, slander at work or in our family. We're much more likely to experience defeat because of our own internal corruption and sin. This is, you know, if you look at Acts chapter 20, when, when Paul comes to the elders at Ephesus and he warns them that there will arise wolves in sheep's clothing, he goes on to say and understand that it will come in from, from within. Be on guard for those things that start from within the body that can destroy it. And what you have here in this story is an example of what can happen within the body that if left unchecked and not dealt with can have devastating results. So let's recognize, first and foremost, in this story, 
We, we see that if Satan cannot destroy a church, if he cannot destroy you as an individual from outside opposition and force, he will seek to do it through internal fraud and corruption. Now, the main point, the main application that we get from this passage this morning is simply this, that sin, and especially premeditated hypocrisy and spiritual deception, is not a trifling matter to God. It is serious. And we need to take it seriously and not just laugh it off or dismiss it and think, oh, well, God's just gracious. He doesn't care. Verse 4, Peter says to Ananias, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then the passage goes on and says, three hours later, Sapphira comes in and Peter has her brought before him. And he asks her, did you sell it for this much? Yes. And you gave it? For yes. And then he says this, how is it that you have agreed together, verse 9, to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What you want to bet, those people never forgot that church service. <laughs> they never forgot that one, did they? What do you think about those young men, right? Do you wonder in the future years, like when they got married and maybe they had children, how do you think they told that story? How do you think their reaction was, their response? I'm going to tell you something. I bet you when they told their, I bet you they told that story over and over and over again. I know I would, right? I bet they told it to their grandchildren. And if they had great-grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And I bet every time they told it, they got quiet and solemn. I wonder how many times tears came to their eyes when they reflected on what they had seen. And as they understood the holiness of God, the otherworldliness of our Savior, the seriousness of being a child of God, and the seriousness of sin and how dangerous it is to treat it in a light, trifling manner because it's not a trifling matter to God. You know, the death of Ananias and Sapphira has, has produced a lot of angst through the centuries in the Christian circles. They look at this and they, like, like, like you know, my, my covenant goes, is, is, this the, is this the Old Testament? <laughs> Or is this the new covenant? Where's the grace here? I don't understand this. Why, didn't, why weren't they just forgiven? And so as a result, some, some have tried to explain it away. For example, what happened here was Peter being Peter <laughs> and being overly zealous and cursing and judging them so that they fell dead. And, you know, that's not what God would have done. And, and that's, that's not fair to Peter. Peter does not judge them. All Peter does is announce to them, 
you have not lied to man, but to God. And then it was God who judged Ananias, right? It was God who took him out. He simply announced what God was going to do. And so that brings up a couple of questions. What was it that Ananias and Sapphira did that so provoked God to have this kind of response? And why does he respond so severely to them, right? So what was it that they did? You know, at the end of chapter four, we just mentioned Barnabas, he sells that piece of property, right? They apparently saw the attention, the, you know, some of the the appreciation that came from the apostles. They saw the response of the church to that, that extravagant gift, sacrificial gift. And apparently, they wanted that same kind of respect, that same kind of status and attention that had been given to Barnabas. Of course, they didn't understand that his generosity stemmed from this humble gratitude for what God had done for him through Jesus Christ. It wasn't flowing out of a desire to be viewed as this super spiritual saint who everyone else should be like. This was just an act of worship and gratitude to him from him towards God. And they didn't apparently understand that. So they come up with this plan. The underlying Greek in this, in this uh, verse makes it very clear that this was not some kind of, you know, ex- ex- extemporaneous theft. It was embezzlement. In, in other words, <clears throat> think of it like this. To put it in our, what we're going through right now, let's say we're, we have pledges that we're doing for our building campaign. It would be the equivalent of someone say, making a pledge for our building campaign and saying, okay, uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to sell what I have and I'm going to give to the church you know, all the proceeds of this sale and, uh, and that's going to end up being $80,000 while you knew that the proceeds of the sale were actually $150,000. Right? And so then what you do is you, you only fulfill that, that $80,000 commitment, but you pretended as if it was going to be much more. Or maybe it's making a pledge in order to, to, to not be thought bad of, but internally there's absolutely no intention to fulfill it. You're just trying to do something so that you don't look bad or that you look good. This is what you have going on in this story right here. They promised to give it all, but they ended up embezzling portions of it, but they pretended as if they had given all of it. This isn't simple theft. This isn't simple, you know, breaking a promise. It certainly isn't, you know, uh, you gave a pledge over a three-year period and you know, in, the, in that period, you lose your job. Your life is turned upside down and you don't have the, the means anymore to fulfill that pledge. And you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I mean, that's life. It happens. That's not intentional deception and lying to, you know, to God. What they do here is very different. This is intentional deception. It is hypocritical larceny. They are doing what they are doing in order to look better and more spiritual and more put together than what they actually are. That's what's going on here. So why does God respond so severely? Why doesn't he just like, you know, let the sin come out and them endure the shame that everyone finds out, okay, they lied, they're hypocritical. Why does he strike them dead? 
in the church service. I've thought about that a lot this week. And, and what kind of came to me was maybe an example from back when I coached basketball. Right? I had a team a few years ago, and they were a junior high team, seventh and ninth graders, but we ended up having to play junior varsity teams, mostly 10th and 11th graders, right? And the first year I coached them, honestly, they were soft. They were weak sauce. It's just all there is to it, right? And so the first year was all about toughening them up. And the second year, we had a blast. And one of the things that I did to help get these guys on the same page and build, an e- build a kind of a, a culture within our team is I gave them an expression and we said it almost every practice, right? They got to where they could fill it in for me. Blood on the court is a good thing. <laughs> Blood on the court is a good thing, right? And those boys ate it up like red meat. It was awesome, right? And I would tell them, listen, blood on the court's a good thing. If it's our blood, great, because we're diving for the ball and we skin ourselves up and we're hustling and we're fighting or we go through the middle and we play hard and we get busted upside the head and we're bleeding down our face. That is awesome. One time I told him, I said, there's nothing sexier to the girls, fellas, than having blood running down your face. Might have lied a little bit, okay? So, but you get the idea. And, uh, or their blood. The other team's blood, because we're fighting hard. So one night, we had this game against a team over in Orlando. And everybody in the league knew that this team stacked their teams with players that they would recruit and give scholarships to and everything else. They were all in like 10th and 11th grade. They were all big. Their, their varsity team was all seniors, and they typically beat us, our varsity team. And our, I mean, I got a junior high team going against the equivalent of a really good varsity team that they called junior varsity. And so we went into that game, and I told these guys, I said, fellas, blood on the court, and they said it is a good thing. I said, that's right. I said, there's 12 of us on this team, which means I have 48 fouls to give in this game before we have a problem. I said, the very first guy who runs into the key to do a layup or to come to the basket, I said, I better see him hammered. I want you to hammer him. Don't kill him. Don't put him in the hospital, but put him on the ground. And every time somebody comes into the court, you make them pay whenever they try to drive the basket. If they make a layup, they're going to do it with bruises. I said, and on top of that, if fellas, if you don't get a boxing out foul in this game, you're going to run suicides at the next practice. I want you to box them out so hard that by the end of the game, they have lines of bruises across their thighs. Blood on the court. It's a good thing, right? They went out there and they just played their hearts out, right? One of my guys got a foul for boxing the guy out all the way out to almost past the three-point line. And the ref said, you can box out, but you can't push him out of bounds, you know? I mean, they, they, they played so hard. Now, I wish this story had a happy ending and that we won the game. We didn't. But I'll tell you one thing, they didn't beat us. We might have lost the game, but they didn't beat us. When that game got over with, they were whipped. When it came time to schedule the next year, they refused to play us. (laughs) 
Why do I say that? We were making a statement to that team. You are not going to beat us up. You are not going to do this to us. Not at all. So we made a statement. We punched them in the mouth, not figuratively, not literally, right? I would suggest to you that this is exactly what is going on right here. God is making a statement. And it is not the first time he does it in redemptive history. In fact, at critical points of redemptive history, you will see God making very obvious statements as he carries out severe judgment towards sin. And he does it severely to remind his people of who he is and how he views sin. So for example, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, the tabernacle is being put together. It's a new time where now God is going to move in to the Holy of Holies and his presence is within this tabernacle. In Leviticus chapter 10, they begin to worship in the tabernacle and two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, those are name options for you new parents there, right there. Nadab and Abihu, right? They come to the, to the altar of God and they, they decide that, you know, I think it would be a great idea for us to bring fire to the altar. And they bring unauthorized fire and worship God in a way that he had not decreed. And God responds severely to their sin, viewing it as a blasphemous act of worship. And this is what happened. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, their daddy, right? This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, I will be glorified, made holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace, and their brothers came and gathered their remains and buried them. Wow. New, new era in redemptive history, God makes a very strong statement. Fast forward. Joshua chapter 7, new phase in redemptive history. The children of Israel now entering into the promised land. They're going to conquer the promised land. And a man by the name of Achan directly disobeys God. When they came to the first city, Jericho, God had said, do not take any of the spoils of Jericho. They all belong to me. And Achan hatched a plan with his wife that he had taken some of the jewels and other precious things and they hid it into their tent. And as a result, the children of Israel experienced defeat against a dinky little town by the name of Ai. Ai and a few dozen of their soldiers are killed in what should have been just a brief skirmish. And God unveils that sin that was in the camp of the Israelites. And Achan and his wife and his children, his entire family line, his goats, his sheep, the dog, the cat, everything associated with Achan is brought outside the, the camp and destroyed. Stoned to death, burned now you have Ananias and Sapphira. 
And again, we're at the beginning of a new era of redemptive history. The new covenant has begun. The church as we know it today has now begun. And here are these two people and they lie before God and his people. They actually, what they're doing is they are testing the Holy Spirit with their sin essentially daring him to do anything about it, right? These are devout men, devout men and women, Jews, who've been raised in the word of God. They know God is omniscient. They know God is gonna see what they do and understand what they're doing. They're just banking on the fact that he won't do anything about it. They're testing God, testing the Holy Spirit with this hypocritical, intentional deception And God responds, viewing it as this outrageous offense against his grace. How much worse punishment, the author of Hebrew writes, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Church, sin, especially premeditated hypocrisy and spiritual deception, it is not a trifling matter to God. He is making a definitive statement about sin in his church and in his people. He is not going to ignore the sin that was in the tabernacle. Why? Because his presence is now within that holy place. He's not going to ignore the sin in the camp where his people now live in community and fellowship with one another. And if he's not going to ignore it there, do you believe that he will ignore it in our setting? If he won't ignore it in those settings, what makes us think that he'll ignore it in ours? How much more will he not ignore it in his church And in his people in our day, which combines all the elements of the tabernacle and the camp in one place. Because this morning, the Spirit of God is here. Not in the Holy of Holies, in a place that we can't interact with. He's in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the people of God living in community in the camp together. He's not going to ignore intentional hypocrisy and deception because of the threat that it poses to the people of God. It shouldn't surprise us that God responds so strongly to blatant hypocrisy. And he does it in such a severe manner. I mean, think for just a moment about the words of Jesus towards hypocrisy and hypocrites. Jesus' strongest words of condemnation were to the Pharisees and to the scribes, right? He said, you generation of hypocrites. You look, you're, you're a whitewashed tomb. In other words, you are a beautiful on the outside as a monument and you look so good and religious, but on the inside, you are a rotting, decomposing, putrid corpse. Strong words from our Lord. Why is that the case? Why is hypocrisy so offensive to our Lord? Well, there was a Puritan from the 1600s, Thomas Brooks, who wrote on, and he said this, self-ends are the operative ingredient in all a hypocrite 
does. Behind all hypocrisy is pride and a desire for self-glorification. Putting forward a, the, the word hypocrite, right? It's the actor, the person who puts on a mask and pretends to be someone that he isn't. And he's doing so for his own ends, for his own self-glory. A modern writer, Bruce Hurt, says that hypocrisy is one of the sins that God hates above all others. A hypocrite has God on his tongue and the world on his heart. Let's read that last sentence aloud together. Ready? A hypocrite has God on his tongue and the world on his heart. What a great description of a hypocrite. Another writer, I don't remember who, I read so much <laughs> the last few weeks, said it uh, kind of like this. God would prefer us to blasphemously curse him than to say hypocritical hallelujahs. Of the two, the blasphemous curse that is honest, plain, from the heart, no pretense, no deception, he prefers that over a hypocritical hallelujah. Think about that for a minute. Shouldn't surprise us. It's not a trifling matter. So then why doesn't God strike us dead? Most of us have had that kind of uncomfortable confrontation with like a coworker or a family member. Maybe our own children have looked at us and pointed a finger and said, you're a hypocrite. You ever had that accusation? From someone? You're a hypocrite. First of all, all accusations of hypocrisy are not hypocrisy. Okay? We do need to understand that. Don't confuse hypocrisy with the human condition of sin. Every one of us here believes, if you're a Christian, you believe it's a sin to be proud in an arrogant way, right? Yet we, we are proud and arrogant at times. We believe it's sin to lust and yet we'll lust. We'll, we believe it's a sin to use our tongue in a destructive manner, but how many of us used our tongues in a destructive manner this week? Does that make us hypocrites? Because we believe something is right and this is the way we should live in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, yet we fail and we don't live that way. Does that make us a hypocrite? No. That makes us a sinner, a human being. Hypocrisy involves deliberate deception and lying, especially to God and God's people. Hypocrisy is deliberately pretending to be more spiritual than you actually are in order to deceive others for personal ends, personal goals, a personal agenda. Okay? You're intentionally deceiving others to appear more spiritual, better off than what you actually are. That's what hypocrisy is. So sometimes charges of hypocrisy are basically a slanderous misunderstanding of sin, but that shouldn't cause us to think that God doesn't care about hypocrisy. He does. It's not a trifling matter. And we do have to acknowledge this morning, if we're honest with ourselves, and not hypocrites, that every one of us, God would be justified in striking us dead. I don't think, I doubt that any of us in here have never played the role of the hypocrite. This is why it's 
so important. Our, the first value of our church is living authentically with one another. Because hypocrisy will destroy us as individuals. It will destroy our church. It's not a trifling matter. Not at all. Have you ever put on a false front, a false face, to project yourself as all put together when in reality you're falling apart? Have you ever come to church or come to small group as a couple and you smile and you act like you're all getting along just fine and just five minutes before you're in the car sniping at one another and shouting at one another? You ever done that? Don't admit to it. You don't have to right now. Have you ever pretended to be a a person of prayer and reality? The only time you pray is right before the meal. Or you pretend to be a worshiper of God and the reality is, is it happens from 1030 to 1145 on Sunday mornings and the rest of the week is just... Have we ever put on a false front to project ourselves in a certain way when our heart was very different? I have. I have. Are some of us even this morning living hypocritically? Is there a man here pretending to love his wife and be faithful to his wife and in reality is having an affair on the side or is turning to some other source for his sexual gratification. A wife who pretends to love her husband, but maybe through the internet is conversing with another man, another person, turning to other people for their emotional needs to be met. A teenager who pretends to mom and dad that everything is great, they love the Lord, and they come to church, and it's all an act. If you could really be somewhere else, you would be. We pretend to to be generous with our time, our treasure, our talents, when in reality we're miserly. I wonder how many of us this morning are actually living hypocritically, putting up a false front. See, we're all sinners, every one of us. We're all sinners. Do we live authentically like that with one another? Are we in bondage to sin and faking it and not letting other people know about it? Or are we bringing other people into our sin struggle? See, that's the difference. A hypocrite will act like everything is fine in his life when in reality there can be a sin that's just kicking his hiney day after day after day after day. That's the hypocrite. So why doesn't God strike us down? Why doesn't he kill us? Like he did Ananias and Sapphira. Why doesn't he just lightning bolt, strike Jerry Clem? I deserve it. I deserve it. Well, the reason why is because he struck Jesus down for us. Jesus climbed on the cross, and when he climbed on that cross, he paid the penalty of our hypocrisy all of our hypocrisy, all of our spiritual deception, every single last event and example of it, even in those times when we don't even realize we're being hypocrites, 
That's the insidiousness of sin. And Jesus has already paid the price. He, God struck him down. And because he struck Jesus down in our place, he can give us grace. And he can call us to repentance. And the Holy Spirit can convict and convict and convict. Does it mean that he will always give grace? And allow us to continue on? Oh no, because whom the Lord loves, he also will chastise. He will not let us continue in our hypocrisy. He'll bring us to repentance. And as you see in 1 Corinthians, there were some in the Corinthian church because they didn't respond to the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. They ultimately they too lost their lives for profaning the Lord's Supper. This is a timely message as we come into the Lord's Supper. Because this is a sacred meal. And we're to come to it with a humble recognition that we are sinners constantly in need of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are sinners who have been forgiven because Jesus Christ was struck for us. And because of this, we are actually accepted by God. And we have this identity in Christ that we can rest in. We don't have to be afraid of the things that we don't have in life. Have you ever wondered why would Ananias and Sapphira do something so stupid? Why? You know, in, in verse 4, Peter essentially says the same thing. Why would you do this? You were free to do with that whatever you wanted to do. You could have brought some, none, or all of it. It was all up to you. You were free. You know, they didn't recognize they were free. They didn't recognize who they were in Jesus Christ. And the fear of not having the recognition... Maybe the fear of not having that extra money to help see them into their old age. The fear that was going on in their life motivated the sin of hypocrisy. And why was that fear there? Because they didn't understand what Jesus had done for them on the cross. And I would suggest the same is true for us. So before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's bow our heads together. Let's think for a moment about the seriousness of hypocrisy. The importance of being with, honest with God about our sin. 1 Corinthians tells us that we ought to examine ourselves before we partake of the cup. That to take of the Lord's Supper in an unholy manner with known, unconfessed sin in our lives. Eats and drinks the body of the Lord. They eat and drink judgment on Himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died. But if we had judged ourselves, we would not come under that judgment. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, reveal to me my sin. Holy Spirit, shine a light upon my heart. Help me to see the hypocrisies that are there.
come before the Lord this morning, church, and confess what is revealed. Turn from it. Seek the cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ. For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins, to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, we thank You that as Your sons and daughters, we can come to You and we don't have to hide. In fact, it's foolish to hide because you see it, know it all anyway. You know everything about us. Help us this morning to come to you transparently, authentically. Reveal to us the pride, the lust, the anger, the worry, the dishonesty, the greed, the idolatry, the self-glorification, the unbelief. Father, break our hearts for those of us who are in bondage to sin, who are hiding it, not dealing with it transparently with others in biblical community, but putting on a fake front. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Give us the courage to go to a brother, a sister, a pastor, Bring the struggle out into the light so that we can be healed and restored through the gospel. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. This morning as we take the Lord's Supper, you're welcome to do so even if you are not a member of our church as long as you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Go ahead and take off the bread portion first and remove the wafer and then turn it over and remove the paper from the, the juice. The Apostle Paul says these words. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this, and each time you do so, drink in remembrance of me. This meal is for those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, come see us after the service. We would love to help you enter into the family of God. If you are a believer, and you have confessed your sin this morning, and you are ready to take the meal, you're welcome to join us. But if you're still holding on to something, and you're refusing to repent, unrepented sin is not a trifling matter to God. Do not eat and drink this morning. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Eat and drink in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And this morning, as we stand together and sing to you, may you hear from the bottom of our hearts our love and appreciation for your sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. In your name we pray, and in your name we sing. Amen.